Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with James Miller, the CEO and recently named Chief Creative Officer of The Collected Group. The group is made up of three contemporary brands, Equipment, Joie, and Current Elliott. Miller shared why the old school still rules. For The Collected Group, department stores are still a big sales channel, and email beats social media as a marketing tool. That's next. Hey, James. Hello. It's nice to meet you, Jill. Great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Have you had a Brit on before? Hey, no, I think we're short on fabulous accents on this podcast. Fabulous accents. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like I, that title. I think it adds a little something, something. A little flair. Okay. <laughs> adds a little interest. It'll be great. Well, for anyone who's listening, it's British. I often get asked if I'm Australian, then South African, and then I, we end up somewhere in the British kind of regions. Yes. How long have you been in the States? Five years last week. So oh, it's my congrats. fifth anniversary. Yes, but I've somewhat kind of detoured around the world to try and get in here. So I ended up moving from Shanghai. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So I had five years over in Asia, living in Hong Kong and Shanghai, and then over here to New York. Going from Shanghai to New York, what's the... I mean, it's so different. Is it jarring? It's jarring. What's the one thing that stood out about New York? I mean, I'd say there's a lot of believability that New York is the fastest pace you could get, I think, of any major city in the world. And I think there's a rather unsung message in what happens in certain parts of Asia where the rapid speed is typically the norm. And when you've got almost these cultural evolutions happening overnight, it's so interesting to see, especially in my industry, things evolving at a rapid pace that potentially even eclipses New York. OMG. I know, I know. Better step it up. Pick up the pace. I, I miss that. But at the same time, there's something really wonderful about having this kind of pace that is New York for kind of this industry that we're in this time that we're in and yes. watching this new decade kind of evolve and seeing where something as amazing as New York City can be in 10 years time right. is rather phenomenal. Yes, we shall see. Was mm-hmm. it, have you always been in the fashion apparel industry? I have. Yes. I've never left it. I think I was 14 when I started doing work experience with my parents and then I've evolved to never kind of thinking that I could do anything else. And I always wanted to luckily follow my passion, which was to be in this industry yeah. and to achieve something unique and be part of something special. And I'm lucky to have had that belief when I was at a young age and knew what I wanted to do from day one. Nice. So you have experience. Your experience goes back. Ted Baker, Baker, Polo Ralph Lauren. Indeed. Do you say Ralph Lauren? Lauren. I say Ralph Lauren. (laughs) Thank you. I think there's a lot of squinting eyes if you go with the Lauren. Yeah. Because it's almost like you don't want to suggest that it's the wrong way of saying it, but it's absolutely the wrong way of saying it. I was right. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. Ralph Lauren. Yes. Okay. Great. So collected group now two years. Um, You're brought on as the CEO. Yes. What was the state of the company when you uh, two years ago? I mean. The the business today, the Collector Group, which is a portfolio of three women's brands about to evolve again, which I'll talk about, um, it was called Dutch LLC at the time. And yeah. it was founded by Serge Asria, who, if anyone knows the kind of history of the, Astra, of the Asria brothers, who took over various parts of LA fashion at different points in time, French heritage. And the business itself had taken on investment. It was owned by a different uh, private investor uh, with the original founder. And I came to join them to take the business on the next iteration of its journey. And part of that was evolving the brands to be not just culturally relevant for tomorrow, but also how to globalize what their potential could be. Got it. And then almost at the same time, looking at 
how do different houses work? These different fashion houses around the world, a lot of them are very separate. You have all these amazing brands under one house, and then you find that they all operate very differently. And sometimes the level of expertise can go to one brand and not be shared with another. So part of the intrigue was with the collector group, as we renamed it, creating almost a fourth brand, which was the platform, so that anyone that works with us is sharing the successes, the wins, and the knowledge of what works with all brands. Yes. So that's part of the special kind of opportunity that we took on. Very cool. So do you consider it or do you call it a holding company or a conglomerate or just a fashion house? or how, what, What's the right label? We, we refer to it as a fashion house. Yep. You can call it portfolio, but we refer to the fourth brand almost as a third person, as a platform. So you could almost take in brands and either lump them onto the existing platform and the same excellence would go towards what we're trying to drive there. Or you can evolve the way that one brand may be benefiting um you know, us as a business into what it could do for another brand. So as an example, I know that I can use certain statistics that I understand in equipment that could benefit Joie. And again, when the denim category is evolving in current Elliott, I can understand what to do, which may be appropriate and organic for the other two brands at the same time. There's a lot of the shared management that goes towards moving the brands forward. That makes sense. So it's equipment, Joie, current Elliott. Yes. Um, Am I correct? did Joie start as maybe like a house brand or did that, did you guys start that label and did current Elliot, I know uh, we had Emily yeah. and, um, oh my gosh, what's the other name? Merit. Anyway, yes, Merit. Emily and Merritt on the podcast before. Um, so they formerly, you know, were the owners of that. You, that came in later. When did equipment come in? Talk to me about that. These brands have such diverse history. It's so interesting. I found out a lot more when I was inside the company than I ever expected to, to know. I mean, Coming from overseas and not knowing the state of how these brands may have shown up, I was really surprised to see the size and scale of Joie. It didn't necessarily have a, a large kind of presence overseas, but it certainly had a really big demographic and cultural shopper here. I almost kind of talk to people who always say to me, you know what, I've got an element of Joie in my wardrobe. Oh, I have a Joie t-shirt. Oh, I have a Joie pant. And it's funny because people don't necessarily know that they're a fan or the customer of the brand. They just know that they bought it at some point in time. <laughs> And so looking at this brand, its history, it was founded in 2001, had a really amazing story because I think the original founder was called Joie. And depending on where you are in the US, people often ask me, ask me, is it called Joey or is it called Joie? <laughs> she was called Joie. She founded the brand. She was Parisian and she lived in Malibu. Oh. So there was a nice kind of evolution of Parisian chic and Malibu heritage built into this customer kind of design around effortless um, effortless feminine romantic yes. lines with a fusion of utility in there as well. And that's evolved quite nicely. Who doesn't like to say joie? Joie, I know. <laughs> I mean, the spelling is somewhat, you know, can lead you astray, but that's why I think certain people call it Joey. Yes. Um, but that brand was, you know, it's nearly 20 years old. So to some Jeez. degree, it's interesting to see how far it's come, but how much further it can go. Whereas yeah. you look at a brand like Equipment, and that brand was founded in 1976, and that was founded. Who knew? Who knew? And it was founded at the time. The editor in chief of French Vogue, so it was okay. Karim Rotfield's husband, Christi- uh, Christian Restoir, who founded the label. Get out. It is incredible. When I joined the company, I looked in our archives, and we have thousands of archives from 1976 through 1991, which was the first iteration of the brand. Yeah. And there were stores, very small, intimate, clean stores, very much along the lines of a Comme de Garçon-type iteration, Junior Watanabe, very clean. But the actual presence of a, this androgynous brand at that point in time was very revolutionary. 
And when it kind of almost went into a bit of a dormancy period in 1991, it got resurged by Serge Azri in 2009. Got it. And so really the last decade has been this new iteration of what equipment means for this day and age. And in particular, as we go into 2020, there's a lot of legs to what that means yep. for various reasons. Okay. Current Elliot was founded within the organization with Serge and Emily and Merritt, and that was probably around 2010 as well. Yeah. And a little bit of history that I don't think anyone knows. Initially, it was Joie that was going to be developing a line called Joie Jeans. Oh. And at the time, it was with this design team under Current Elliot, and they thought, well, surely this has got to be a bigger approach to the world of denim, and maybe there's a different type of evolution for what this category looks like. Let's spin it off. Let's call it something else and let's move the original in, uh, interest in Joie Jeans into its own label. And that became Current Elliot. Well, there you go. I did not know that history and we had them on. Hello. There we go. <laughs> so you kind of, you keep the design very separate. You've got the denim brand. You've got the shirting, maybe going more into suiting. Mm -hmm. Definitely shirting um, brand in um, equipment. And then the Joie is more lifestyle. Would you say a feminine lifestyle yeah. brand? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The different, different aesthetics for sure. Yeah. Although there are some complementary crossover customers. Yes. So design is separate operations. Pretty much everything else is Design, yeah, design is the only part of our organization that is truly independent so that you can really get the DNA of every product correct for the honing a message of the brand. Yes. Talk to me about the state of the contemporary uh, market in general, because we've done several stories about kind of the squeezing out or the, the threat of being squeezed out as, yeah. you know, the fast fashion brands get those that are price conscious and then mm -hmm. the luxury brands, everybody's going for the name, the label. Um, where do you find how do you see it right now? It's so interesting because I think everyone's going to give you a variation of an answer that may be right for them. I don't think the contemporary market for, for me, if I look at the three brands we have, is going anywhere fast. And I think when times get tough, recessions hit, there's a conversation around how best to kind of appropriately spend on fashion. You don't always want to go and buy disposable fashion because it may not last the test of time. Sometimes when you go through a bit of a drought in terms of where to position your dollars, you end up investing in pieces that are going to last. And I think that's where value and quality and design heritage come into play. So all of our brands do slightly different things. But if I look at equipment, there's this nonchalant French design that's classic and timeless. And so when you're buying an item like that, that is your underpinning for potentially a decade or longer. I mean, the idea is that these pieces are designed to last. It's, yeah. not, a, it's not a moment in fashion or a moment in time or a moment in your wardrobe. Yeah. So it depends on the market, depends on the, on the type of brand. I think... As you go into this decade, the message is so important. Yes. I think this time around, contemporary fashion will probably change predominantly because the customer that's going to be shopping the next decade expects meaning yep. and a message behind where they part with their dollars. And that doesn't matter if it's contemporary, luxury, or otherwise. Yes. Are you putting more of that messaging into your marketing now? Are you saying, you know, this is a shirt that will last you 10 years? That's kind of maybe why it's sustainable? Or what are you doing there? It's a, it's a lot. If I think about where we started on this, this journey, I mean, it's taken us the best part of nearly three years to try and refine what the messages should be by brand and where it fits into society. Some of it is, you know, to put kind of a nut and bolt analogy to it, Yes, it's about growing a business. So at some point, you recognize that there's a need there to grow the messaging. The other part of this is I have this incredible team 
we all work so well together when we're motivated by what we do. And part of that is the trust that they put in me and I put in them to be able to inspire the lines with some cultural relevancy that they can be proud of so that they have a legacy, we have a legacy, not just on our brands, but on society. And we can look back on it and be proud of what we do. I've got a team of designers in current Elliot who are so incredible and they they just for um, summer of next year and we've sold it in just a few months ago. But the story around what we sold in on this natural range that we created out of dyes that you deduce from pomegranate seeds that we grew on the roof of our office building in Vernon, California. And that hand-touched personalization and the message that carries through to the customer is so important. Definitely. We've got a similar... Um, uh, opportunity within Joie. We moved all of our fabrications towards being more natural fiber-based so that they have a better position in the market in this degradable society that we live in right now. Yeah. Certain people refer to it as upcycling, you know, recycling. But at some point, this non-degradable synthetic conversation is dangerous for our world. Yep. And everyone is talking about it. Absolutely. So about 75% of our line right now, which we've been working on, is derived from natural fibers. Awesome. And then very different for equipment. Yeah. Very different for equipment. You know, there we already have a brand that is derived from natural fibers and clean silks. I'm not sure if anyone knows this, but our silk that we use in equipment is what we refer to as grade A clean silk, which means it hasn't touched pesticides or chemicals in the production process. And that itself has a message behind it. And then we're starting a line that actually goes within this umbrella of equipment um, called 100 Equipment. And it's a 100% organic cotton line. Okay. We're down to the label, which is made of recycled glass fibers. Yep. There is a reason to know that your product that you're affording is going to make a difference somehow, even to you personally. Yep, absolutely. Is that a huge investment to make that switch or evolve the line so that it is more uh, sustainable in, in the consumer's eyes? It's It's an investment in people. And I'd say having the right minds, having the right team, having the right conversation and the ability to see the light at the end of the tunnel makes it that much simpler. It's, it's not a question of, of, of cost. It's not a question of, you know, how much resources do we need to put on this to make it happen? At some point, you've got to recognize that the world is going to move and you can either be left behind or you can move on ahead of the times. Yep. And that's what we're doing. And we've awesome. luckily formed the team to do that. Awesome. Am I correct to say that the Collective Group, it's a vertical company. You're doing everything in-house. What, what's not happening in-house? What's well, not happening in-house? Well, everything happens in-house <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I, there isn't a product that doesn't go out of our door into our showrooms that I haven't kind of seen, witnessed, and had some sort of emotional attachment to in some way. <laughs> but outside of the production that we would have with our vendors and partners globally, we have amazing partners and distributors around the world. So whether that is in Europe, in the UK, um, we have showrooms that we fully own in some parts of the world and then great partners who've been working with the company for the last decade or so and some new players have come into play as well. Uh, That's really on the sales front. Everything else down to our retail stores, design, marketing, it's all in-house. Got it. All of it. Oh, and you have wholesale partners. Talk to me about that. What's the balance now between direct sales and uh, wholesale? Wholesale's been the juggernaut of the business for a long time. Yeah. So if I think about the fastest growing area of our business, it's coming out of international, which is something of a hybrid between when you're looking at, call it online and brick and mortar wholesale. Yep. It's what you'd expect because you've already kind of got these brands where they were permeating major department stores at an all door level for such a long period of time in the US. The fastest growth regions come out of international, but the the strongest juggernaut for our brand is still, I'd say, resilient wholesale accounts okay. where they know how to apportion a, a buy for the right customer because our lines are broad yes. and not a one size fits all approach works for every customer. 
but there's a lot of trust in our brands to be able to do something for each relevant account. Okay, great. So does every account have exclusive merchandise? Some some do. There's a reason where, even because of calendars, you know, if international markets have go, they have four markets a year as opposed to the five markets we have in the US, then they have a different way of spending their budgets up front. Yeah. So we do have to do little capsules for them. And then with, with the US, we've always done exclusives from a marketing from a marketing perspective. It's not always driven by chasing the dollar. It's about what is the message that we can really drive their customer to our brands. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the international business. Is that You have stores, international stores as well, uh, physical retail? We have physical retail, only one location right now, which okay. is in, um, in Japan. We have a equipment store in Ginza. And um, that's with our partners over there as well. But we have a lot of wholesale accounts, which are in brick and mortar, clearly. Um, Which markets is it? uh, Well, the the wholesale accounts go geographically across the world. So all these brands, in particular Equipment and Current Elliott, you can find everywhere across the Middle East, Asia, through Europe and the UK. Awesome. Um, With Joie, we're at the very beginning of that message so that we can really kind of refine who that customer is in different markets. Okay, great. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. In the States, rent the, you're definitely at Rent the Runway. All three brands, I've seen them. We are. We are. <laughs> How's that working for you? It's such an unusual but incredible business. Um, very statistic driven, but offers a complete insight into what the customer of tomorrow will look like. You, you, th- you can look at these department stores, which are, you know, heritaged in, uh, into the U.S. culture. What do they represent? Who do they talk to? But how do they get an aspirational customer into their doors? And if I look at the different demographics in each of our channels, I can see age difference across the portfolio. Yeah. If I look at our DTC brick and mortar stores that we have at retail and our online business, we're somewhere in the region of, say, a 30 to a 35, maybe 37-year-old customer online and in-store. Okay. Wholesale is a little older than that. Rent the Runway has taught us that we have an aspirational customer who's even younger than the customer we've already been servicing. Nice. So they give us a lot of the statistics. They have a lot of the history to understand where is this Generation Z going to be shopping at some point in their future. If they want to spend their money differently on experience-based product, then maybe they're going to be better off affording a rental program. And if we can conform to what they need and they want to aspire to try, try different styles and work out what they represent in their own kind of way because they're new potentially to career, getting promoted, you know, making themselves feel like a better version of what they represent in their future, rental is a great opportunity for that. So we've learned, been learning with them and certainly we've seen very interesting results. Yes. So they're giving you a lot of data. Uh, you're creating, I guess, product maybe exclusively for them based on that data. And also, uh, to what extent are you using data throughout, you know, your design process or development process? Is that going into every step at this point? It it does and it doesn't. I'd say on the product front, they don't necessarily want, I'll put a name to that, Jennifer doesn't necessarily want to have I think, specifics that are only there to find or rent the runway. That's not their goal. And it, I, I think that's echoed by certain department stores as well who say the DNA of the brand needs to be in it. We want the best of what you offer. Like an exclusive is the cherry on the top, but everything else is we want the best of what you represent. So there's probably some production restrictions like, okay, they're the biggest dry cleaners in the whole of New York City, right? right? So the idea that <laughs> the idea that you're producing product of a quality that is dry cleanable, that doesn't have detachable materials, there's certain restrictions there that make it more specific for the rental market. But outside of that, a bestseller is a bestseller. Yes, that makes but sense. But with the statistics that we get from them, I think it goes back to our kind of core message of each of the houses, which is you've got to design for your aspirational customer. Not for who you always service in the past and today, but who you want to be servicing in the future as well. Yes, got it. Can we talk a little bit about your uh, 
brick and mortar strategy in the U.S. Sure. How many stores are going are out there in, across brands? Oh, we have 35. 35. 35 stores. Predominantly, they're Joie stores. Okay, got it. Are they predominantly in on the coasts? They are really well balanced between east and west. Yeah. Um, some of them are neighborhood doors where you've got a lot more kind of quote passing trade and mums and push chairs. And then you've got a lot of weekend farmers fairs and markets that go on yeah. around them. And we have some stores that are in shopping malls as well. Got it. So we've been opening a few that have more of a tourist kind of destination. Got it. But for now, I'd say we're really kind of refining from a product strategy what these brands represent from a global standpoint. So our efforts are really on internationalization of the brands. Okay. What's happening in store? Is it uh, come shop? <laughs> Is there an experience? Something extra? Oh, Are yeah. there events? What, what, what? Yeah, we do a lot of these events and, and certainly there's a lot of local marketing that we do. But there's there's definitely, if I look at one of the next events we have coming up, the equipment flagship, which is in Soho, we are clearing the store for, I think it's the week of just in between Men's and Women's Fashion Week. And we are going to be launching the gender fluid collection for equipment in store with a with a discussion and a panel. We're doing this in collaboration with the Fluid Project, who are very, very big campaigners for the non-binary sector of this, this community. Yes. And we want to be evolving the conversation in store, touching the customer in a much more intimate way. Okay, great. I feel like I've heard uh, hints or I've heard about this um I don't know where. So has this been, this is not yet officially launched? Uh, what, if we, what day are we today? The 22nd? No, 23rd. I would say you're about 12 days out. Okay, great. It's nail biting. Oh, you've been teasing uh, it. I definitely have heard of that. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm almost, this is the, I think yesterday, what was it the day before yesterday, was probably one of the pinnacle days of my, my career in this industry ever. Yes. I watched the campaign being put together for the gender fluid collection launch for equipment. And we've, we have ambassadors who are almost, I think, when I say spokespeople is the wrong word, but they are intimately involved and aware of the restrictions and their own personal journeys in the non-binary community and what they can do to try and build a platform for people of a certain pronoun who don't necessarily identify in our industry to one gender or another. And that is the type of platform that we want to have as a way of engaging with not just the brand, but the consumer. Mm -hmm. It's less about, okay, it's an equipment, wonderful silk material. It's more about what are we trying to do because we can help move and build a, a, a real following with what we've got to present with these with these wonderful ambassadors. Nice. So they're also going to be part of the platform with the discussion and panels that we're having in New York. We'll have the same in Europe and the same in Asia. But it's wonderful to be able to have a touch point where the person that represents a brand is as important, if not more so, than the product. Definitely. Do you what do you what are your expectations? Is if this is a success, will this become kind of a permanent uh, collection? Do you right now it's just slated to be like a collab? It's the, maybe a season. This is can this is continuing. Okay, our, great. our first delivery is is February third in store, and then we end up with a full delivery and a resort delivery to follow that. And we've been really careful that the people that we're working with believe and understand the message. Yeah. It's been really interesting to try and show the collections around the world and then understand that there's conversations about, well, do we put this on a women's floor? Is it a men's floor? What happens if that, someone doesn't understand it? How do you get the message across? And there are various buying teams that have been really proactive to say, you know what? This needs to happen. Mm -hmm. We need to be part of pushing the industry forward and evolving what is going to be there for tomorrow's consumer to feel comfortable about not just a brand that they're buying into, but the message of authenticity yes. and what that represents as well. It goes back to the whole conversation around meaning yep. and having a product and a reason to buy. 
Um, so in terms of what that looks like, there's going to be plenty of people who are taking it globally. Mr. Porter are taking it. We've got Bayman in Turkey, a proper in Germany, Ron Homan in Japan. There's all players who've really believed in this non-binary sector as being part of their shop floor at some point in the near term. Yeah. So the ambassadors, they're going to... Will they be posting on their Instagram channels? Will you be? How will you be promoting this, um, marketing this? Um, so there will be a lot of content that goes out, not just on social media, but in store and online as okay, well. Great. So when we have this this event that will launch with Mr. Porter online, there will be a platform and a panel discussion in the UK. A lot of press around it. Okay. Most great. of our budget, I have to be honest with you. Maybe people don't talk about this. A we lot love of, to talk budget. <laughs> a lot of our a lot of our spend on season one and season two are going on seeding to the right. I wouldn't even say influencers or celebrities are the right word in this day and age. This is about giving the product to the right people who are going to spread the right message. And that's what we've been wanting to try and emulate with the success of the recognition of gender fluid around the world. So when we do have these panel discussions, that touches a very intimate community. Hopefully with these ambassadors who are going to be talking about and showcasing what their message means to this part of the collaboration, that will get the message even further. Yes. Who are, are some ambassadors, some recognizable folks that... Oh, I have to keep that one under wraps. <laughs> I have to keep that one Come under wraps. On, man. I wish I could tell you, but um, <laughs> I will. I think it will become very clear on the third. But um, there are some well-known names, but there are also people who potentially don't necessarily have the largest following, but that's not what's, what's important here. We're trying yes. to make sure that there are areas of this demographic and these genders that don't necessarily have a voice. Yes. And it goes beyond Hollywood. It goes beyond the red carpet. It goes beyond the U.S. And today we have brands that show up in the Middle East and Asia and there are restrictions on what gender and sexuality mean. And our product is really about gender and not sexuality and trying to educate that there is a difference there. And part of this for me is very fresh because I've always wanted to do something that is meaningful with this type of topic, but without the Fluid Project and in particular its, its CEO, Rob Smith, we wouldn't have been able to even activate this type of this type of discussion. And the right. work that the Fluid Project are doing is exceptional in our industry. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit more about your Instagram strategy because I know on all three sites mm -hmm. that I visited today, uh, there's something, I think you're going to town, user-generated mm -hmm. content. There's something called a fan reel or something like that at the, yes. at the bottom of each page. Uh, yeah, just showing everyone wearing your clothes. How important is UGC? And has that always been on the site? How long has that the been going on? Unreal has been on, certainly on the websites for a long period of time. Yep. I think using the content on Instagram is somewhat newer. Um, and we evolved this conversation from the simplicity of not everyone is going to dress up the way that you might put together a style guide or a campaign. Right. Part of it is just fun. You want to have that engagement with a customer that can have immediate feedback with you. And... I'm, I'm sure that people would always say, you can't think of everything every day, every minute. And having people reimagining re the product in their own vision yep. is some of the fun. So if I look at what I think Schwa represents and the femininity there and the romanticism and then this kind of almost utilitarian vibe that it has, it's so interesting to watch people piece that part of themselves together in one look. Yeah. And that's great. Why not show it to the rest of the world? And it may not be the way that we sometimes show things, but I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Are people engaging, clicking? Is that uh, driving any purchases? Yeah. I think we've got a very significant ROI-based analysis that absolutely tells us that what we do post about and what we do showcase in different ways that doesn't come from directly our own kind of media um, department absolutely converts online. Great. And sometimes that is the wonderful thing about technology, and sometimes it's the frustrating part. Yes. 
<laughs> What's frustrating? Well, I don't think everything in this day and age should be about ROI and conversion. Yeah. And there's a difference between ROI and then brand awareness. And yeah. brand awareness doesn't have necessarily a ticker against it that gives you a metric. It's about the atmosphere and who effectively is going to believe in the vision and not the conversion. Yes. It's not always about that. Oh my gosh. If you were just about conversion, what is it just, you know, what everyone's doing is Facebook. What is driving sales? What is in, Facebook in fact Facebook does working? still drive sales. Yeah. I'd say the biggest channel for us of, of, of focus within marketing for online customers is definitely email. Yes. Oh, the, interesting. E- email for us is a fantastic conversion tool and a really good way of connecting with our with our customer, both online and offline. So our database that we activate through our stores and through online and then also international itself tells us exactly where we need to be going yep. and who to be talking to. What's in those emails? Are they very product-focused, very editorial? Product-focused and, depending on the brand, maybe editorial. Yeah. The same things that work for Joie don't work for Karen Elliott and the same thing that works for Karen Elliott does not work for equipment. Every email is different. Some images need to have people in them and some people need to be almost in an editorial fashion. Whereas certain brands and certain product categories look better as thumbnails. So it really is, there's a lot of testing that does go on through our e-commerce division and um, it's really read and react. We're lucky enough that we have all of our studios in-house. So we can definitely do a lot of testing and see which way people are voting with their fingers. Yes. The resurgence of email. A lot yeah. of folks have been saying email is, is it. Oh, yeah, I mean, email is a very, if you can get it done the right way, absolutely. I mean, you de- it's your own database. It's not organic people just trawling through Facebook or Instagram and, you know, it's directly in the inbox. Totally. Are you guys working in seasons, seasonal collections, or you're dropping faster these days? We've, we're funnily enough, future-proof to where people are going now. It's, it's so interesting to watch people create non-seasonal fashion. So when they're dropping it at any point in time, it's great because the world of social media means that new brands can almost be globalized overnight, which is fantastic. It also means that potentially they may be dropping off calendar. We do 12 deliveries a year for each brand. So that is sold in seasons. So you're going to be, for example, today, I've just come from a full line review. So we're selling in fall of 2020 next week. And that is three deliveries of the 12. Okay. So you can imagine how much is going into the production and design and how far up in a calendar you're working to try and get inspiration there to make sure that you've got customers coming back and seeing something fresh that they're really passionate about having in their wardrobe. Definitely. Gosh, is there another brand to come? Are you, I I think the original idea for Collective Group was that uh, acquiring brands, Mm -hmm. kind of bringing them into your fold. Uh, Are you scouting <laughs> what's I, happening there's two things happening number one that that opportunity is definitely there about buying it but about acquiring new brands whether it's wholly invested or partially invested to be able to use our platform for that purpose the second part of this is about really making sure that our brands are future-proof so we don't lose focus and there's a lot of exposure and opportunity for each of these brands differently we've just done a collaboration with the vampire's wife Karen Elliott that was for the holiday season of last year and in theory that was almost a brand within a brand yeah and for equipment We've turned equipment into this umbrella brand, a little bit like a Comme de Garçon that has a Comme de Garçon play, a Comme de Garçon homme, Comme de Garçon shirt, Comme de Garçon boy. Yeah. All of those divisions have a purpose to the actual overall umbrella, but you put them together in a really unique environment and they do something quite, quite powerful. So with equipment, we have an equipment femme line and then we have this equipment 
fluid line. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to that, we're launching other labels within the line for different segments of the market, all of which at some point will go into a retail concept. So we have this 100 equipment line that is coming to fruition in October of this year. We actually have the reintroduction of sleepwear, which we're calling Vetement de Nuit. And that launches in fall of this year. And it's the first, I think, sleepwear component to be sold both as separates, but also as machine washable silk. Amazing. So that is our kind of other line within the line. And then we have footwear that's launching for equipment in fall as well. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So what does that mean for you? What Going into footwear, is that a partner, a, a footwear partner? No. Everything's... <laughs> we have... So this is where excellence in platform sharing come in. Yes. We have a joie footwear business already at wholesale and at retail. And so what we found is from a design aesthetic point of view... That's one thing that needs to be very, very separate to joie. But from a production standpoint, we have that excellence in-house already. So we can be able to go ahead and monetize that and drive a nice collection um, without going too far beyond our means. Awesome. Have you guys got a presence on Amazon? We actually are very, very cautious about a presence on Amazon because part of that is third-party driven through specialty base. And some of that could be because they want to build their direct business with us as, as a business. I think the one thing we're cognizant of is in this day and age, I don't think the storybook is written yet in a complete way to show what's going to happen to impact department stores and the remainder of your market in conjunction with operating Amazon. I'm a big believer in Amazon fashion, without a doubt. I think there's certain um, barriers to entry that need to be broken down before we evolve into a wider culture of true luxury being on Amazon. Yeah. But I definitely think we're on the periphery. And we speak to them a lot. And they're such a wonderful, wonderful team. And I know that they're trying their very best to make sure that what they offer is different, but also um, unique enough that it offers brands a reason to go online to their platform. You're in talks. That's We're a sign. in talks. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're trying to get their hooks into you. <laughs> oh, yes. Look, there's certain things that I think absolutely could be with uh, an Amazon partner and other things that potentially may not be. Yeah. We're launching a, a, a also within equipment uh, an archive line, which is called uh, Les Archives, how original, yes. in French. And um, it's effectively looking at exact replicas of our, of our ancestry line from 1976 through 1991. Oh, cool. And we'll only be offering 12 SKUs a year. So we'll be very, very positioned in the haloing of the brand and of the message with this limited edition number of items that go out from exact replicas of our archives. And I've looked at some today and they are phenomenal. But that is where the halo needs to come into play and it can't be as widely distributed as everyone may want. Yes. Do you agree with the kind of common uh, idea that if it's just going to take a huge a large luxury player, one, somebody's going to go to Amazon and then it's going to be a flood because everybody's going to be like, oh, well, if they can do it, it's okay. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. I think I think when you look at Tmall over in China oh, definitely. and yep. you think of what people have been doing there and you look at it and say, okay, well, where are the synergies between an Amazon and a Tmall? Well, there are some, maybe both parties may disagree, but there are absolutely the players in the Chinese market who were first mover advantaged into going to Tmall so that they could protect two things, third-party selling and counterfeiting. Yes. So that's really the purpose of what Tmall represented for luxury brands. Slightly different on Amazon because you're not necessarily at the sort of same leveraged issue of counterfeiting, but there's also a way to try and see what brands who've already had a, a, an applicable market with Tmall can do here. I think Burberry have done that, Coach have done that, yeah. and there's other op- other examples as well. Totally. Uh, I first discovered Joie, I think it was a Neiman or a Saks, but can, you talk, yeah. <laughs> can you talk about the state of the department store, the U.S. department store, before, we're, before we wrap? Yeah. 
the US Department still model isn't going anywhere. And 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 I think first and foremost, people who, who like to kind of sound the death knell, it's a little too uh, too early to do that. And I say that probably because I sit and talk to the leaders of these department stores day in, day out, and, and their aspiration and their vision is to be better tomorrow than they were yesterday. And I look at my good friend, Jeffroy, uh, who has taken over as CEO of Neiman's and the goals that they're on there to really drive an omni-channel behavior that the business has never had before and to make sure that their brands feel unique and special. Same with Nordstrom. They have a real position in understanding their customer. And if I could be quite so bold as to say that I think they have a very European aesthetic that I don't often see in the US, they have a really unique separation point between where other department stores may otherwise knock into them. Yeah. Bloomingdale's for me, uh, they do a lot of new tests and formats and examples of how to kind of engage with a younger customer, whether that is pop-up stores in-house and how to position a theme around a product that they're bringing in. And also the rental program, they're trying their hand at rentals as well. Yeah. You know, and Saks, really has a very, very loyal customer. They all do to some degree, but I can pick a Saks customer out of a, out of a crowd. <laughs> and so when you spoke about exclusives and you th- think about what they represent and you look at even what Saks are doing with Barneys and that licensing model there, no one's sitting and resting on their laurels. And right. so whatever that means for the future, the department stores are relevant, they're needed, they have a specific customer that may be different to a rent the running model, but that customer needs to be serviced differently and spoken to differently. Right on. Just like you, keep evolving, right? Always. If you stand still for too long, then you're just going to fall behind. Right on. Thanks so much, James. Thank you very much, Jill. It was so a pleasure. Fun. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.